me for the videos. I couldn't help myself. I hope you're not offended. <laughs> See what I did there? I just let myself off the hook. <laughs> so for the last month, uh, we've been exploring how easily offended our culture has become. And it's really true. It's funny because you don't actually have to teach anyone how to be offended. That's just something that we kind of learn along the way, right? We don't ha take a class and figure that out. That's just, we just do that. Um, and uh, we've been talking about how easily offended our culture has become. Uh, and we've been asking whether we have the right to participate. Uh, is there anything that should cause followers of Jesus to become offended? And Steve showed us uh, way back at the beginning of this series and, and, and throughout each week, uh, the word that the Bible most often translates as offended uh, in the Greek is skandalizo. And he explained that that word goes beyond just feeling bothered by something. Um, skandalizo is the kind of reaction that causes someone to sin in response to the offense. And obviously that word is never used about Jesus since we know that Jesus never sinned. Uh, we know that he was bothered by things. Uh, usually it was things that the religious leaders did, uh, but he was never led into sin by his reactions to things that other people uh, were doing. Now the religious leaders were often offended by Jesus. They did allow themselves to be led into sin by their reactions to what Jesus said and what Jesus did. And then last week, uh, Steve took us through Paul's thoughts in 1 Corinthians and in Romans uh, on how to avoid offending others. And he taught, I think, a really important lesson that we should make every effort to avoid leading people into sin. We should do everything in our power to avoid offending someone in a way that causes them to sin. Uh, and, and so Paul lays that out for us. And this morning, we're going to wrap this series up, and we're going to finish by looking at the other side of that same coin. What do we do when people are still offended by us in spite of our best efforts to live at peace with them? In spite of our best attempts to avoid offense, uh, what do we do when people still become offended by us? And anyone who's ever worked in a service profession, anyone who's ever worked with people, knows that sometimes offending people is just unavoidable. People have certain expectations. People uh, walk in uh, with certain things have gone on in their life already that day. Something has happened, and sometimes it's just unavoidable. Sometimes people will just become offended. Uh, I, I read this week over 100 actual customer complaint stories. If you get some time on your hands, I fell into this wormhole on the internet this week reading about these uh, people in the service industry sharing some of their stories of some of the ridiculous things that uh, customers have complained about <laughs> with them. And, and I want to share a few of my favorites with you guys this morning. Uh, this one says, uh, a guest ordered the nachos, but he asked for every component of the nachos to be served on the side. And then he complained the entire time about how difficult the nachos were to eat. <laughs> this guy works at Jimmy John's. He said, one time a woman complained that we made her sandwich, quote, much too fast, unquote. And she refused to eat it. <laughs> this one says, I work at a library. Uh, a patron came in and knocked a whole shelf of books on the floor. Then turned to me and yelled, pick them up. I pay your salary. <laughs> a woman managed to spill gasoline all over herself at the gas station I worked at, uh, and she demanded that we pay for a new wardrobe. <laughs> Someone once ordered popcorn shrimp at my restaurant and then sent it back, complaining that it tasted too much like shrimp. 
And then my favorite one, I once had a woman call into my office above the grocery store to complain that she had cut into her orange that she bought from my store when she got home and juice fell out of it. She wanted a replacement orange. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Stories like those, I think, are solid evidence that the customer, not always right. (laughs) We, We need to be careful, I think, that, that we're not the one on the wrong end of those stories, that we, we're not the one that people are telling stories about, like, can you believe this guy that came in? We need to be careful that we're not the one getting offended over silly things. We also, I think, need to do everything we can to avoid offending other people unnecessarily, but what happens when people are offended by the way we live our lives for Jesus? What happens when people are offended by our faith in God? What happens when people are offended by our belief in God's word, in in the Bible, in the scriptures? What happens when people are offended by something that's at the very core of who we are called to be? Well, fortunately, Jesus has something to say about this because Jesus expected this to happen. Jesus kind of saw this coming, right? He sat down with his disciples uh, for a last supper right before his arrest, before his crucifixion. And in in John's gospel, we get four chapters of red letters uh, as Jesus shares his his last teachings with his closest friends uh, sitting there in, in the upper room. And that's the context of John chapters 15 and 16, Uh, where Jesus lays out what to do when the world is offended by the way that we live. Uh, We're actually going to look at most of these two chapters today, John 15 and 16. We're going to kind of live there for the next little while. Um, And so we're going to start in uh, in John chapter 15, verse 18. We're going to start about halfway through, but I'm going to jump around uh, in this section. John 15, 18, Jesus says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who has sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what was written in the law. They hated me without reason. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you've been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, (laughs) sorry, I read the punctuation wrong. They will put you out of the synagogue semicolon. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you uh, will think they're offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. So why does Jesus tell his disciples all this stuff? The Last Supper, right? 
the last chance he has to, to, to lay out his teaching, to make sure they, they're, they're, they finally get it, to make sure they're, they're, they're living the right way, and he chooses this moment to lay out this idea that, hey, listen, the world's going to hate you, the world's going to persecute you, the world might even kill you and think that they're you know, doing everyone a service. Why would he say that? Well, I think the key is in, in verse 1 of chapter 16, where Jesus says, it's so that they will not go astray. And probably not surprisingly, that word is scandalizo. So they will not be led into sin. Jesus is warning us, hey, the world is probably going to hate you if you live for me. They might persecute you. They might even kill you. Why is he telling us this? So we're ready. So we're ready when it happens, and it doesn't cause us to turn around and sin against the world when they treat us that way. He gives us a heads up, right? So we can be ready for it. If you live for Jesus, somebody's bound to get offended. That's just the reality. It's going to happen. And Jesus isn't concerned with helping us prevent it from happening so that we can get along with the world, so, so, that, so that we can, everybody can just kind of live in harmony all the time. Jesus is concerned with our response when it does happen. When the world hates you, when this crops up in your life, when that happens, what do you do? How do you respond? Jesus tells us what to expect so that we don't let ourselves get offended back at the world. You can't let the world's hateful reactions to Jesus lead you into sin. You can't let the world's reactions to what Jesus is calling you to do in your life cause this scandalizo reaction. When someone gets mad at you, it's a natural reaction to get mad back at them. When someone hates you, it's tempting to hate them back. We don't have to be taught how to react that way. Um, Just look at children, right? This is children, just kind of, this comes naturally to them. You know, one kid like, well, I hate you. Like, well, I hate you more. And it just, it turns into like this natural defense mechanism, right? That you hate me or that you're upset with me or I don't want to be your friend anymore. And instead of, in, instead of just like being upset about that or trying to reach back out to the person, we double down and we say, well, I'm mad at you too then, right? I've watched my kids do this to this day. I have a, an almost 14-year-old and a 10-year-old, and they have not grown out of it, right? They, they still treat each other this way uh, because it kind of comes naturally to us. But Jesus isn't having this. Jesus doesn't, doesn't have any of this. He's always been up front with us. Jesus doesn't, doesn't sugarcoat it that there will be social consequences of living for him. And in this section, he spells it out super clearly. The world will hate you. They might persecute you. They maybe will even hope that you die. And we say, no, Jesus, no. It doesn't have to be that way. Like, you're, you're exaggerating the point. We can live for Jesus. We can live for you. And the world will still love us because, ready? Because we'll make it a better place. Right? We feel like if we just, we just live out our, and we will, if we live for Jesus, we will make the world a better place, right? But it doesn't mean they won't hate us. If your goal is to make the world a better place so the world will like you more, you've got the wrong goal. It's not going to work. It's not how it's ever worked. From the time that Jesus said these words until now, Christians have been hated in the world. And sometimes it's for good reason. Uh, Like the things Steve talked about last week, when we make a big deal about things that aren't a big deal to God, um, that can cause people to hate us. Uh, when we go on our crusades in order to force the world to submit to the way we think things should be, um, I can kind of understand why the world reacts negatively to that. So sometimes it's for good reason. 
But even when, even when Christians are just doing the best we can to live for God, the world hates us. The world hates us because living for Jesus can be a threat to power. That's why the religious leaders hated Jesus, because his way of living meant that they would have to stop lording their power over other people. And the world hates us because living for Jesus means committing to a fixed moral standard that we won't compromise. That's what happens when someone becomes a Christian and her family hates her because she thinks she's better than us now. When we stop pursuing sin and start pursuing Jesus, it's offensive to the people around us who are still pursuing sin. And the world hates us because living for Jesus means that uh, we believe Jesus is the only way to God. Not just the best way to God, but the, the only way. I can't help it if Jesus says no one comes to the Father except through me, but that's offensive in the culture we live in. That sounds intolerant of other people's beliefs. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry if someone hates me because I love Jesus and I want to live for him, and when he says I'm the only way you can come to the Father, that no one comes to the Father except through me, that I decide that I'm going to believe him and take him at his word, I'm sorry if that's offensive. I'm not sure what I can do about that. There are some things that I can't smooth over just to make the world happy. There are some things, you remember the story when the disciples in the, in, in the book of Acts, when they, they get dragged uh, in front of the authorities and the authorities demand, you can't do this anymore, you're stirring up all this trouble, you've got to stop talking about this Jesus, and they're like, uh, I'm not sure what you want here, I can't do that. Um, I, I've got to obey God rather than men, I think is, is the wording that they use, right? And so, yeah, when, we, when it comes to this, this conflict between, hey, the world wants me to do this and the world wants me to just kind of go along, and God says, oh, wait a minute, I want you to live this way. If I choose God's way and that's offensive to the world, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do about that. I'm called to choose God's way. I won't stop living for Jesus. I won't stop loving Jesus just so the world might like me better. Jesus doesn't warn us here so we can get ready to defend ourselves. Uh, Jesus isn't warning us that the world's going to hate us so that we can develop a strategy and like, be ready to like, attack them back when they hate us. Jesus is warning us that the world's going to hate us so we won't be led into sin. Because responding to sin with more sin isn't the plan. And so that begs the question, so what is the plan? Right? If we know that offending the world is unavoidable, if we know that the world will hate us just because we live for Jesus, what should we do? And, and there's, there's lots of different answers to this question. Right? Different churches are trying different things in order to, to, to answer this question. Some churches uh, choose to be world-embracing. They, they choose to, to, to view the world as a relatively harmless place and encourage one another to just join in its lifestyle and to go along, right? And, and since Jesus says in verse 19 of the passage we just read uh, that we don't belong to the world, it's kind of hard to justify a strategy of just embracing everything that, that the world wants from us. So maybe then we go to the opposite extreme and we become world-rejecting. Maybe we just reject the world and everything it stands for, right? Some churches uh, have experienced so much hostility and rejection uh, from the world that they don't see anything to gain uh, by being connected to it at all. And so they disengage from public life, maybe form their own society. And, and I get it. I understand. Uh, I, I understand that reaction. You get to a certain point where it's like, man, this just isn't worth it anymore. All they do is hate me all the time. I don't want to subject myself to that. But... But that kind of ignores the basic idea of the way Jesus lived his own life. 
You know, he went away by himself for, for times in order to recenter, in order to refocus, in order to reconnect with God, but he never totally disengaged from public life. He, he, didn't, he didn't run away and, and kind of form an, uh, his own society with his disciples so that uh, it, it wouldn't be so difficult uh, to, to, to live under the world's hatred. So we could split the difference and just be world-suspecting. We could just kind of live suspicious and cautious of the world, uh, I think a lot of churches do this, kind of see the, the world as a, a fallen place, uh, and the church is this, this safe haven, you know, kind of this lighthouse uh, in the storm, and, and they continue to participate in public life. They don't withdraw from the world, but they do it really carefully so that they don't compromise their beliefs. Um, like I said, I think that's probably the way most churches function, that we live out in the world all week long, and then we gather together every Sunday with, with other people who kind of believe like we do, uh, so we can be encouraged and we can be strengthened to go out and live another week in the world. And listen, that's not bad. Um, that's not bad at all. Coming to be encouraged and so that we can go out and, in, in, you know, with renewed strength to go out and live in a, in a world that needs us to not abandon it, uh, that's not bad, that's, that's good. But it's not enough either. It's not bad but it's not enough. Near the end of this whole section at the Last Supper when Jesus is talking to his disciples in John 17, Jesus has this long prayer. And he prays for his disciples in John 17 and, and, and in, in one spot he says, as you've sent me into the world, he's talking to God, as you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. It's not enough for the church to be this world-suspecting, like safe place where we can escape from the world once a week or a couple times a week, or all the time, right? That's not enough, because the church is sent to be world-changing. Not world-accepting or world-rejecting, and yes, world-suspicious makes sense for a lot of the times, but that's not our purpose, that's not our mission. Our mission as a church, our mission as a sent people is is to go out into the world and be world-changing, to be salt and light in a world that, uh, that... would rather hate us than listen to Jesus, honestly. So how can we bring change to a world that gets so offended by us and by Jesus, by the God we serve? You ready for this? This is super revolutionary. I don't know. If you're hoping for some like five-step plan to guarantee world change, uh, you're gonna be disappointed this morning. I am sorry. All I have for you this morning are, are three promises Decide to be a good preacher and have three points today. All I have is three promises from Jesus, right? Right from this section that will help you when the world hates you. They're all right here in in John chapters 15 and 16, three promises. So here's the first one. When the world hates you, the church will love you. Now that might not be your experience. And if that's the case, I truly am sorry. Because this is how it's supposed to be. When the world hates you, the church will love you. We are called to love you. We are called to love one another. Right before Jesus tells us how the world's gonna feel about us, right before the section we just read, Jesus says this, if we back up to verse nine in chapter 15. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other 
as I have loved you. So that's not difficult at all, right? Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. So Jesus loves us deeply, so deeply that he laid down his life for us, not as servants, but as friends. And twice in this section, he gives us a command, love each other. Love each other the way I have loved you. And John explains this a little later on in the New Testament. John wrote the Gospel of John, but he also wrote uh, a few short letters near the end of your New Testament. Uh, and in 1 John 2.9, we read, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. Steve has said this like every single week, and I'm going to say it again. We don't have permission to hate. Even when we're right. Even when someone hates us. Even when we've become offended, we don't have permission to hate. It doesn't mean we never get angry. It doesn't mean we don't have a a negative reaction to things. It doesn't mean we never disagree with one another. Uh, The word that John uses when he says hate, uh, it's not just an occasional outburst of anger. This is like one of those, like I'm gonna commit to like nursing this grudge for the rest of my life kind of a hate. Um, I'm gonna feed this uh, attitude until it becomes my habit, until it kind of defines who I am. Uh, And so when John says that there's nothing in them to make them stumble, he's using scandalizo again. Here's that word again, right? There's nothing in them that's going to cause them to sin, that's gonna lead them into sin. Loving each other in the church means that we are actively avoiding leading each other into sin. It's not just about me trying to make sure that I'm not sinning, it's also my responsibility to help you not sin. That's what the church is. That's how we love each other. We're sinful people. And we say and we do things that hurt each other, even in the church. Shocking, right? Even in the church, we will say and we will do things and it will hurt people. If you've been around long enough, there will be an offense that takes place. Doesn't matter who it is. Family member, friend, uh, you know, person that you go to church with, that you sit next to. If you're around them long enough, if you're in their lives enough, there will be an offense that takes place. Something will happen and it will hurt you. But love says that even though you committed an offense against me, I choose not to be offended. Even though you hurt me, I forgive you. I choose not to be offended. Luke 17, Jesus lays it out like this. He says, things that cause people to stumble, they're scandalizo, by the way, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Tell us how you really feel. (laughs) 
So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Wait, Jesus, no. You misspoke. Surely you didn't mean that. But like the, the punctuation I see at the end of that is a period. The end, right? Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. See, even when the world hates you, the church is called to love you. Jesus knows that things that cause people to sin, scandalizo, Jesus knows those things are bound to happen. But Jesus has strong words for people in the church who are causing others to sin. Don't be the one who causes someone to get offended. Don't be the one who lives in such a way that other people around you are are, are tempted and, and led into sin. And if you're the one who gets offended by someone in the church, Jesus says that as often as repentance occurs, forgiveness should be given. If you're the one that gets offended by someone in the church, Jesus says, as often as they are willing to come to you and and ask for your forgiveness, as often as they repent and they say, oh man, my bad, and and, probably a little more than that, right? But, uh, you know, I shouldn't have done that. I'm so sorry. As often as they come to you and repent and ask for forgiveness, you're supposed to offer forgiveness. And I'm like, man, Jesus, that's super hard. And he's like, yeah, I know. Well, I mean, what else do you want, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's, there's nothing else there. Like, yep, I know. Do it, <laughs> right? You ever noticed, I noticed this this week, you ever noticed how many ways we have of expressing our anger at other drivers? Like, I mean, like, you can lower your window and, like, scream at them. But, like, we don't do that usually. We're a little more passive-aggressive than that. Like, you know, like, so many different types of, like, gestures that we have that can express to people how upset we are with them. But you know what I noticed this week when I cut somebody off in the parking lot? On accident. We don't have very many ways of expressing that I'm sorry. Like, universal ways, I'm like, oh, I, I really regret that I did that. So, like, what am I supposed to do, right, to let this guy know that I didn't mean to? So, I gave him a wave. But as soon as I did that, I felt like a jerk. Like, I gave him a wave, like, hey, I've got the right away. <laughs> right? Thanks for, you know, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm more important than you. See, hi. Right? So, then I thought, okay, so I asked my wife, like, okay, what would you do? And she's like, well, I would give a shrug. I'm like, Like, is that what you do? Is that the gesture for like, oh, my bad. Like, I didn't do that on purpose because I feel like that makes me look like a moron. Like, I look like an idiot. Like, I don't know how to drive. So what do you do, right? What's the the acceptable, like, I'm sorry, you know, I don't know sign language and I I think I would venture to guess most people driving also don't. So I, I don't know how to express this. And I think that's like a microcosm of the world we live in, right? We have so many ways of telling other people how angry we are with them, but we don't have that many ways of like repenting. And saying like, oh, that's on me. I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to do that to you. In the church, if someone hurts you and repent, Jesus says, forgive them. And you're like, okay, yeah, but then they just did it again. Jesus is like, well, I mean, was it seven times in a day? Because, you know, keep forgiving them. In the church, 
sin is both rebuked and forgiven. See, Jesus isn't saying gloss over it and pretend like it never happened and just everybody gets along. But it's not enough just to do one. Rebuking sin, calling it out for what it is, shows that we take righteousness seriously. We want to take right living seriously. But forgiving sin shows that we take relationships seriously. I think sometimes in the church, we, we like go all in on one or the other. That We go all in on relationships and we never acknowledge when people are sinning because we don't want to ruffle any feathers. But I think also sometimes in the church, we go all in on like this moral standard that we have and we have never acknowledged that we're actually called to live in relationship and in community. And Jesus says both. We got to have both. That we're called to live a certain way, but part of the way that we're called to live is forgiving people when they mess up. And even when they don't mess up, like when, when they offend us like on purpose and then realize what they did and come back to us, and like, man, I really shouldn't have done that. We're, we're called to forgive, right? That's hard. It's easier to keep people down, right? It's easier to keep sinners down in the mud and constantly remind them of their failures and all the things they've done that have hurt you. But that's not forgiveness. Like that's not what Jesus is asking from us. That's what the world does, right? The world wallows in hate. They just roll around in it, in that slop. And, and Jesus says, don't do that. Don't get caught in that. Jesus says, you gotta choose love. Don't wallow in hate. You gotta choose love. Love that's patient and kind, not boastful or rude or self-seeking. Love that's not easily angered. Love that doesn't keep track of all the wrongs that somebody else is doing. As a church, we're called to live differently than the world, especially when it comes to the way that we treat one another. So that's the first promise. That's the longest one, I promise. <laughs> so here's the, the second promise that Jesus makes here is that when the world hates you, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will advocate for you. The Holy Spirit will be in your corner. If Jesus experienced hate and hostility in the world, we will too, but Jesus doesn't expect us to handle it on our own. That's pretty good news. He, he gives us the Holy Spirit. When he's talking to his disciples in John 16, he calls the Spirit by a unique name, a name that, that really John only uses in this section, in chapter 14 and 15 and 16. And uh, it's, a, it's a legal term, and most literally it, it means advocate, right? Someone who represents us in court, someone who will advocate on your behalf. Um, and the Spirit does this. The Spirit represents us by defending us when we need it, um, but, but the Spirit also goes on offense sometimes in order to convict the world of their guilt so that the world will understand when they've sinned, right? Notice that that's the Spirit's job, not mine. The Spirit defends us by reminding us of everything that Jesus has taught. We, we see that in John chapter 14. Uh, the Spirit defends us by giving us words to say when we need to defend ourselves to the world. Uh, we see that in a number of places in the Scripture. And Jesus says that defending ourselves when the world hates us is the Holy Spirit's job. I don't know about you, but if that's true, I see a lot of Christians who want the Holy Spirit's job. Right? If defending myself when the world hates me is the Holy Spirit's job, I see a lot of Christians who are like, I don't think the Holy Spirit's doing his job. All right, get on Facebook. I'm not sure why I'm on Facebook doing this. That would be gibberish. Right? I, I go defend myself all the time. I don't rely on the Spirit to, to defend myself. I can, I'm fully capable of defending myself. And, and Jesus is saying, hey, there's no need to get defensive. There's no need to get offended. Right? There's no need to get defensive on social media. The, the Holy Spirit promises that when the time comes, he'll defend you. And Jesus has given us better things to do with our time anyway than, than trying to get online and defend ourselves all over the place. And it's not only that, but the Spirit also claims the responsibility to convict the world of their sin. I see a lot of people who want that job. 
I'm, I'm going to convict the world of their sin. And the Spirit's like, hey, well, you know, that's kind of my gig. <laughs> that's what I do. And Jesus goes on in John 16, and he says it this way. He says, when the advocate comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So the Spirit proves the world wrong about sin by by exposing it for what it is. Placing the blame at the feet of the guilty party. Now sometimes the Spirit does this by giving us, the church, words that will convict the world. Sometimes. Sometimes. Most of the time, the Spirit convicts the world by empowering us, the church, to live the way God calls us to live. So that when the world looks at us, when the world looks at this kingdom of God people living a very different way than the world is living, they become convicted about, wait a minute, what am I doing wrong that I don't have that? I want what they have. I want to be part of a community like that. I want to be part of people that when the, while everyone else is hating me, they seem to love each other all the time. I want that. So the Spirit convicts the world by empowering us to live the way God calls us to live. When the church is living faithfully, it's super offensive to the world, right? It will offend the world because the Spirit will be at work convicting the world and exposing the sin all around us. The more the church loves one another, the more the world hates us. That's like a hurrah moment, right? The more we love one another, the more the world hates us. But the more the world hates us, the more the Spirit works through us to expose the world's guilt, If the world hates us, the world hated Jesus. I mean, I feel like that's fairly good company, right? And that brings us to the last promise. When the world hates you, Jesus will remain in you. If we back up all the way to the beginning of chapter 15 in John, before Jesus warns us about the world's hatred, uh, we read this metaphor that Jesus lays out about the vine and the branches, where he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing." If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. But if, you, but if you do remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. The only way we survive the hatred and offense of the world around us is to remain attached to the vine, to stay attached to Jesus, to our source of life, uh, to, our, to the spiritual nourishment that we need that allows us to bear fruit. And the command that Jesus gives is not that we have to bear fruit. Jesus doesn't say, all right, now, bear fruit, get to work, you know, figure this stuff out. The command is to stay attached to the vine so that we will bear fruit. That's why simply believing the right things about God isn't enough. It's important, it's, but it's not enough. And doing the right things, that's uh, not enough either. That's important too, but it's not enough. 
Staying connected to the right source and bearing whatever fruit comes out of that connection is what it means to be a Christ follower. The things we believe and the things we do are both fueled by the connection that we have with Jesus. And if we remain in him, no matter how much the world hates us, he will remain in us. And the promise then is, and we will bear fruit. It's unavoidable that the world will sometimes be offended by our connection to Jesus, but if we remain in him, we can respond to the world's hatred with love. When the world's offended by us, we can have joy. We can have peace. We can reach out to them with patience and kindness and goodness. We can treat those around us with faithfulness and gentleness. When the world lashes out in hate, we can maintain self-control. And it's not because we've worked so hard to develop the fruits of the Spirit, but it's because we're committing, committed to staying connected to the source of life. The world will sometimes get offended by the things we do, uh, the things we say, the way we live for Jesus, but if we stay connected to the vine, God promises that the church will love us, the Spirit will advocate for us, and Jesus will remain in us. Let's pray. Father, easier said than done. It's really difficult to lean in and rely on you when the world hates me. Because I want people to like me. It's tempting uh, to compromise. It's tempting to give in. It's tempting to, to, just, to just go with the flow so that the world will like me, so that I'm not ruffling feathers. Uh, but Father, sometimes uh, there are just certain things that, that you have called us to live for and to do and to be that we just can't give up and we can't give in. And Father, give us the wisdom to know what those things are, those, where we draw the line. Uh, give us the wisdom to know the things that, that are just matters of conscience that we can let go and the things that we have to hold on to as we live for you. And Father, give us the strength to hold on to those things. Lord, thank you for, for the advocate that you've given us. Thank you for the spirit that comes to our defense, the, the spirit that, that works to convict the world so I don't have to. Thank you uh, that, that, that I am called to remain in you, that I'm called to stay connected to you. Thank you that you do the work. Thank you that you uh, bear fruit through me just by me staying connected to you. So Father, help me uh, to, to, to be motivated to live a, in a way that stays connected to you. And it's in Jesus' name, amen. So we're entering into our time of communion and it's not a coincidence that Jesus used a vine and its branches as a metaphor for staying connected to him the same night that he and his disciples had the Last Supper. I mean, they had just had the Last Supper and then Jesus lays this vine and branches idea out. In fact, the contents of the cup are called the fruit of the vine uh, in both Matthew and Mark. And so this time that we do every week, this time of communion reinforces the idea that our main job as Christians is to stay attached to Jesus. If the grapes didn't stay attached to their vine, there would be no juice in these cups. If we don't stay attached to our vine, there will be no fruit in our lives. So use this communion time as a reminder that, hey, the number one deal in following Jesus is to remain in him, to stay attached, to stay connected. So in the trays of our past, go ahead and take a, a set of cups and hold on to them uh, so that we can take communion together.